0: Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Well, I also want to welcome you here to the chapel. So glad to be with you. Thanks for spending part of your holiday weekend with us and and again, happy 4th of July weekend. Hope you have an awesome time getting to celebrate whatever that looks like for you. If you're new with us, I would love a chance to meet you out in the lobby after the service and and my name is Steve Elworth. If we haven't met, I'm the site pastor here at Chapel Segan. And we've been in a series on the book of Ruth, which I hope you're enjoying as much as I have. It's not a book that I had spent a lot of time in growing up. I would not heard it preached before. And maybe like you, I had the, the stereotype in my mind that it was a, it was a book that every women's conference and every women's study is supposed to do. But as I've been getting into it and seeing what God is laying out, there are some pretty incredible things that God has for us in this book. Now it's a it's a short story in the Old Testament tracking along with one family and how God moves through their suffering not just to bless them but to move his purposes forward in the world. And as we continue to track their story we're going to look at a concept that we don't normally go to the Old Testament for. We're going to look at grace Now, grace is unearned favor, unmerited, undeserved favor. It's the things that God does for us that we did not deserve. What we actually deserve from God is to be separated from him forever because of our sin and our rebellion. But grace is God pouring out his love and favor, not because of anything that we have done, but only because of him and his grace. Now, if you grew up in the church, you, you probably have the understanding that grace is primarily, maybe only, a New Testament concept. And of course, the ultimate expression of God's grace is seen in Jesus laying down his life for us that we could know God, that he came to us, died the death that we deserved so that we could have life. But as we've been looking at throughout the book of Ruth and as we've been singing about some of our our weeks, we serve today the same God that Ruth served thousands of years ago. And God has always been a God of grace, and grace is always moving through our lives, whether we see it or not. So my hope for us today is as we look at a beautiful interaction between Ruth and Boaz, who we'll meet today, my hope is that as we see the grace of God in their story, that we would be able to more clearly see the grace of God in our story. So pray with me as we jump into the word. God, we're so grateful for Jesus. We're so grateful that you came after us, that you're not sitting there waiting for us to figure out how to live and obey and come to you and be perfect, but you came to us because of your love and your grace. So would you open our eyes today to see from your word how good you are and may it change us because that's why we're here. If it's just to come and hear what I have to say, we're wasting our time. So God, if there's anything that you that I plan to say that's not of you, would you take it out of my mind? And if there's anything you wanna come and say that I've not thought of, would you come and speak? Because we wanna encounter you today and leave changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Now last week we ended chapter 1 and what we see is Ruth and Naomi had taken the 50 mile journey from Moab where they had been for at least 10 years all the way back to Bethlehem and they came back because they were out of Food, their husbands had died. Naomi had lost her two sons. They had gone to Moab in the first place because of a famine. They didn't have what they needed and they went to try to solve this problem on their own. But as they come back to Bethlehem, we see some pretty broken women in a pretty desperate situation. Naomi comes back completely empty and completely bitter. She told the people back home that you shouldn't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitter. And Ruth comes back. It seems like she has a little bit more hope, but she comes back with no husband, not fully knowing this culture, being a foreigner, and left with the understanding because of the laws of Israel that she doesn't have an opportunity to ever meet A husband and to start a family. The only person that she knows is Naomi. Now, often when we read these stories in the Bible, we've heard them so many times, or the the way that it's written doesn't, doesn't hit us the same way because it was from so long ago. And what we need to understand at this point in the story is that there is a lot of tension. As readers of this story, we should get to the end of chapter one and recognize how desperate their situation is. It should leave us asking the question, how is God going to come through in these women's lives? I and mean, maybe we think, well, it's a story in the Bible, so of course it's going to have a happy ending, right? But we, we should be left at this point recognizing just how desperate things are. It seems on the surface to these women, based on their situation, based on their culture, that they have no hope. And there is no way out. And as we flip into chapter 2, we begin to see God lay out a glimmer of hope. At the end of chapter 1, we saw that the barley harvest had started, so at least there is hope for food. But in chapter 2, verse 1, the author takes an aside to introduce a new character to us, and in so doing, begins to bring hope to the story. This is what we read in in that first verse. It says, Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, here we meet Boaz, and the author gives us intentionally some information about him that's going to be really important as we go on in the story. The first thing that it says about him is that he is a relative on Elimelech's side. Elimelech was Naomi's husband. So we're left realizing that Naomi actually has family back in in Israel. So maybe you're wondering, maybe we should be wondering, why didn't she reach out to him in the first place? I mean, not even just as a suitor for Ruth, but they were desperate with no money, with no plan, with no land, with no food, with no resources. Why didn't she at least reach out to him for help with food? And we're not given the answer. Maybe it's because she was so depressed and broken that she wasn't thinking clearly. Maybe it was because she thought that she had brought too much shame on her family by going to Moab in the first place. Which was, And it was forbidden in that time for an Israelite to allow their children to marry Moabite women. So maybe she thought that Boaz would want to shun her because of the shame that was brought on the family. But I think it's, it's just more logical. If this time, this relationship that she would have had would have been too far removed in her mind to reach out for help. The family lineage would go through the husband's side. And I think she just looks and says, well, he's not my family. My husband had died. My sons have died. I have no legal standing. I have no ethical standing in this culture to reach out for help from this guy. I think she really thinks that she has no one and nothing based on the culture. And she doesn't get to read verse 1. Right? So she doesn't see the author beginning to tease out this hope. We see it. We see some hope coming. But I think at this time, she's just thinking, there is no one that I can reach out to. The second thing that we hear about him is that Boaz is a man of standing. Now, that phrase has a lot of usage in the Old Testament. It's used to describe a mighty warrior. It's used to describe a man of wealth. It's used to describe a man of virtue that has moral standing. And it's used to describe somebody who has social influence in a community. So we don't know exactly what the author is intending to describe Boaz as with that phrase. But as we go through the story of Ruth, we see that all of those things are true. So in saying that he's a man of standing, basically the author is just saying Boaz is a stud. And we need to to know that. Third thing that we see is he's from the clan, Of Elimelech. Now the way that ancient Israel was structured is everybody would be a part of the nation but then deeper in they would be a part of their tribe. Deeper in they would be a part of a clan and then deeper still they would be a part of their father's household. So the fact that Boaz was from the clan of Elimelech that would be more like he was a cousin than a brother. So even more removed from Naomi We learned last week that one of the key principles going on here is the idea of a Leverite marriage, the idea that somebody from your father's household was supposed to marry your wife if you died without leaving children. Well, the Leverite marriage custom did not apply to the clan. It applied to the father's household. So it's right for Naomi to assume that Ruth doesn't have a chance to marry anybody else. But what did apply to the clan is what is known as the kinsman-redeemer custom. I'll put a pin in that. I'm not going to define it for us today, but it's going to be important as we keep going. fourth thing we learn about Boaz is we get to hear his name. Now, most of the names that are given in Ruth have some very clear definition over what that name meant, and it gives us a lot of information about the characters. But Boaz, we don't have a very clear meaning of his name. A lot of scholars will track the etymology of his name and come to something like strength or pillar in the community. But this is what we learn about Boaz. He is a part of the family. He's a man of standing. He's a stud, and he comes on the scene. But Naomi doesn't get a chance to read verse 1. So she doesn't know that there's hope being teased out here. That's just... For us. And what we begin to see as we read is that Boaz is God's provisional grace. God is setting up in the background how he's going to be able to move. And so after introducing him, the narrator picks the story back up, and we read in verse 2 and 3 it says, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields. And pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and entered a field and began to glean after the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. More hope begins to be seen here, but Ruth does not know that there's any relation here with Boaz. Boaz. Now remember the tension in this story. Ruth has nothing. There's no food, there's no money, there's no land, there's no plan. So all she can decide to do is, hey, I'm the younger one. I can do some more work. Why don't I just go out and try to find some food? Let me just go try to figure out how to help us survive. And clearly she understood something about the customs of Israel because she goes out to do what was prescribed for people in her situation. She says, Let me go out and glean. Now, what is gleaning? This is another important custom in this story. When God gave the law to the people of Israel, he commanded that any landowner who was growing crops to be harvested was not supposed to carefully harvest, they were to intentionally leave some of the crop behind. While God was laying out the way his principles and his society was going to function, he was thinking about the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized, and the foreigner. And he provided into the very economy, the very business structure of the people, an opportunity for the poor, the fatherless, and the foreigner to provide for themselves. One of the places that lays this out is in Leviticus 23. It says, when you reap the harvest of your lands, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. So here's the way that this worked. Everybody who had land that was to be harvested, had a few different groups of people that were working the field. The men would go out with a sickle, one of those things that death carries, the little kind of curvy uh, blade, and goes through and cuts down all the stalks, lays them on the ground, and then a group of women would come behind and pick up the stalks and bring them in to be processed. And in this process, God commands not to go to the very edges of the field so that you can actually leave some stalks standing And anything that is left behind, if any stalks fall on the ground, if any seed falls on the ground, they're not supposed to go back and pick it up. They're supposed to leave it there so that the poor and the foreigner can provide for themselves. Now, when we think about this story and we think about how God laid this out, we have to come to the conclusion that we serve an incredibly gracious God. In laying out everything that he was laying out, he commanded, he made it such that the people who didn't have anything could not just provide for themselves, but actually got a chance to work for dignity, to provide for themselves. He has such a father's heart. And think of how countercultural this would be, especially if you're a business owner in here. What God is commanding is for business owners, for land owners, to actually forego some of their potential profit. To leave some of their potential profit behind so that they can serve their community. He had already commanded them to give a tithe. He had already commanded them that 10% of their profits was to go to the temple. He also commanded that those that worked for them were to be treated fairly. And honestly, and serve them in love. This is a third layer to how God wanted to care for the community. Not only should you give out of your profits back in this day in ancient Israel, not only should you love and serve your employees, but you should actually leave some of your profits behind in order to provide for the poor and the foreigner in our community. I just find this fascinating to think about how God laid things out to care for people. And and though this isn't required, this isn't commanded to business owners in our day, I've been talking to business owners uh, for the last couple of years about how this principle can be applied. It's not a command for us, but if we serve the same God, and if God used this principle in order to care for the poor and the foreigner— then I think it makes sense for us to try to figure out how can we emulate what he is doing. And I've been talking to business owners about what would it look like if we actually decided to not maximize profit, to not cut expenses for the sole purpose of being able to provide extra work for people that we might not need or pay people more than we need to. Or hire someone else that we don't necessarily need so that we can provide just one more job. Food for thought. All right, he picks the story back up, and Ruth grabs onto this gleaning principle. And she says, I'm going to go find land that somebody would give me favor. Now, I don't think that people were just going out into the fields and gleaning wherever they could. I think landowners wanted to know who was in their fields. They wanted to make sure that there wasn't a robber, there wasn't any chaos going on. So she goes to actually find someone that would give her favor to be able to go, to be able to go out. And I love the phrase that the author uses. He says, as it turned out, She was in the field of Boaz, who happened to be in the clan of Elimelech. Now, there is so much irony in that phrase. As we're seeing through the book of Ruth, this is all about God's hand moving. This is all about God providing. This is all about God moving his purposes forward. The author does not have, as it turned out, in their theology, And we see that as we go back to the original language, this can actually be translated as, by chance she chanced upon. So what the author is doing here through playful storytelling, it's almost like he's nudging us, being like, hey, look. Look at what's going to happen. Look at how God is moving this forward. He has always been moving, and now they're actually going to get a chance to see it. And what this begins to show us through this playful writing that he's saying is as we look at Ruth, we see God's invisible hand of grace. God's invisible hand of grace. He didn't come to her and say, all right, Ruth, this is what we're going to do. She has to go out and fend for food and figure out how she can provide for her and her mother-in-law and how they can survive. God is not saying, here's the plan. All she does is she looks at the custom, she looks at what God laid out, sees an opportunity and just goes out to try to figure out how she can find food. And in the background, God had been moving the entire time. He had been giving them what they need in each and every moment, even though they didn't recognize it. In the last chapter, Naomi comes back and says, I'm completely empty, I have nothing. And Ruth's probably sitting there being like, I'm with you to the end. Ruth goes out and she has no idea how God's going to move. And it just so happens that she goes to the right field at the right time. And so often, this is how grace works in our lives. We often miss it. We're so preoccupied with how we feel in the moment. We're so preoccupied with the situation that we're in. We're so preoccupied with what we think is supposed to happen. We're so preoccupied with the plan that we've laid out that we think that we're supposed to execute. And so we put our face down and our nose to the grindstone and we just keep moving and try to fix whatever is going on in front of us, not realizing that God had been moving the entire time. Now we get the benefit of the readers to actually see verse 1. We get to see God teasing out hope, but what if you're the one in the story? What if you're the one that has no idea if God is actually moving? What if you've gotten to the end of yourself and the only conclusion that you can come to is that God has forgotten you? What does it look like to see the grace of God in your life, to actually see how he's moving so that we can grow in our trust of him? I think instead of just looking forward to try to figure out where we're going, there's two other directions that we need to look. And the first is we need to look around. And this is where community comes in. There is so, it's so often that the people around us can see what God is doing in our lives way easier than we can see. But when we get in rough and harsh and difficult situations, we tend to isolate ourselves. And this is why the discipline of gathering together in a community group and gathering on Sundays for worship is such an important part of our life. Not because God's going to love us more if we do those things, but because we need each other in our lives. We have to choose to put ourselves around other people. We have to choose to allow other people to speak into our lives. And sometimes that's really difficult. In the Apostle Peter's second letter, right after he was laying out a bunch of character qualities for the people that he was writing to, they were people who were exiled around the Roman Empire, he writes this in verse 12. He says, so I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth that you now have, I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in this tent of a body. If we follow Jesus, we know that he's working. We know that he's moving. We just can't always see it. So I want to encourage you, church, to constantly be looking around. If you see God moving in someone's life, go tell them. Because so often they won't see it. And if you're in a situation where you don't see God moving in your life and you're, tr- you're having trouble figuring out where that is, go and put yourself into community and ask people to speak into our lives. That's one of the, wor- the, the most non-American things right now, to put ourselves into a place for people to speak into our lives. But that's what we need to have happen to us as we move forward because we can see the grace of God in each other's lives, sometimes way more than we can see it in our own life. So we look around and we also need to look back. We need to look back to see the ways that God has moved. I don't know about you, but I found it to be a principle in my life that I can see God's actions in the past way easier than I can see them in the present. When you're in the middle of suffering, we can't see what God is doing. But as we look back, we see, oh, that's what he was doing the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament are constantly commanded to remember. To remember the things that God has done. Often he would have them set up a monument, a physical representation of what God had done so that when they see it, they'll remember what, he's, what he has done and they can pass on his works to the next generation. But back to our story, Ruth hasn't had an opportunity yet to look around or look back. She's just trying to figure out, how do I survive? And here's the rest of the story. In verse 4, it says, Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, Who does this young woman belong to? The overseer replied, She's the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning until now, except for a short rest in the shelter. Now, just to call out, when it says, who does this woman belong to? What it is not saying is, oh, this woman is a lower status. This woman is to be possessed. We'll read that with our modern eyes. This is just something that, this is the way the question would have been asked in that culture. Everything ran through the husband or the father's household so she's just saying what family is she a part of because that's how he would have known her now in the original language this is, this text is this part is a little confusing scholars go back and forth trying to figure out when it says she remained in the field does that mean she was working the whole time and then took a rest or does that mean she was remaining and just waiting and then took a little bit of rest Commentators go back and forth, but I tend to think that in this part, before Boaz got there, Ruth wasn't actually working. And I get that based on how the overseer talks about her. He said, here's this Moabite from Moab, right? He's very clearly trying to indicate, I'm not her biggest fan, and this foreigner just showed up here, so let's wait for the master of the house to get back to be able to punish her. Commentators go back and forth, but I think that's what's happening here. And it's interesting, Boaz doesn't even respond to his overseer. He turns his attention directly to Ruth. And in verse eight, we read this. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you're thirsty, go and drink from the water jars that the men have filled. What an incredibly kind statement. He was not bound by the gleaning law to have to do any of that. But he decides to abundantly bless her. He says, stay here the whole time. The the barley harvest season was through April through June. So three months of food that she was going to be able to have. He didn't have to do that. He told the men, don't lay a hand on her. He gives her protection. He says, anytime you need to come and get a drink, come and get a drink. Abundantly pouring out grace on her. And his generosity to her is amazing. And she is shocked. And she says this in verse 10. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground, and she asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? What a question. What a question. She is so shocked at the generosity that comes through him. And at this time, she does not know that Boaz was a part of Elimelech's family. She's going to find that out later on in the story. She falls on her face. She falls to her knees with her face to the ground, which would have shown immense respect at that time. She knew culturally what her social standing as a foreigner was. And all she can do is cry out and say, why have you had favor on me? I don't deserve any of this. She falls down with humility Pastor John Piper, in talking about humility in this section, defines humility as the opposite of entitlement. The opposite of entitlement. I love that. She falls down and she says, I know I don't deserve any of this. I know that you have no responsibility to bless me like this. And if that's the definition of humility, Most people in our culture today would not qualify. The idea is built into us that I deserve. I need more. I've earned it. You should come to where I am. And I love how we see it in Ruth. She just says, this is unbelievable. And I know I don't deserve this. And Boaz's reaction to her is even more unbelievable. In verse 11, he says, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with a people that you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly re- rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, at a cursory reading of that, it almost sounds like he's saying, oh, you do deserve this. I've heard all the good things that you did for your mother-in-law. I heard how much you sacrificed. You did deserve this. But when we actually look at what he's saying, what he's saying is, I know that the reason you did this is because you've taken refuge under the shelter of God's wings. He's not saying, I'm blessing you because you deserve it. He's saying, you're being blessed because of who you've sought refuge with. You have run to safety in the shadow of God's wings. And he is blessing you through me. God is blessing Ruth, showering grace On her through Boaz. And what we see here is Ruth's utter amazement at God's grace through Boaz. She knows she deserves none of this, and it's being showered on her. And as we continue to read, we see even more blessing that comes to Ruth through Boaz. In verse 13, it says, May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When he sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. He continues to lean in and go farther and farther and farther as he blesses her. It wouldn't have been normal for her to be invited to the table, to be able to dip the good bread in the wine vinegar that would have given it some flavor. It wouldn't have been normal for her to be able to sit with these workers as one who was gleaning. It wouldn't have been normal for someone to say, don't just let her glean the normal stuff. Actually leave out some of what we are supposed to gather and leave it behind for her. She has been so abundantly blessed by the grace of God. And so here we are in the Old Testament looking at the grace of God. Now, when we typically think about grace, we typically think about the New Testament. And for good reason. Because the ultimate expression of grace is God sending his son to die the death that we deserve so that he can come back from the dead and we can have life and be forgiven. That is the ultimate show of grace. But it's just one example of, of the grace that God reveals. And as we move to a close of this message, I want to I look at two directions of God's grace. And the first is this, dispensing grace. Dispensing grace. We see Boaz as a conduit for God's grace. We see that God is the one blessing Ruth. It just happens to come through Boaz. The biblical word for that is priesthood. Now, typically when we think of priests or the priesthood, we think of the Catholic Church or we think of going to confessional and having to talk to somebody to have our sins forgiven. But the biblical word priest just means to be an intermediary between God and people. And what we see throughout scripture is that if God is going to bless those that don't know him, it's going to come through his people, the church. And if the world is going to see the grace of God, it's going to come through God's people, the church. And the biblical reality is that the world will not see the grace of God unless it comes through the church. God could snap his fingers and write a note in the sky, but he has chosen that the grace of Jesus would be shown and lived out by God's people so that the world can see how good he is. That's why we talk all the time about living sent. Because we actually believe that you have been sent to your neighborhood. That you have been sent to your workplace, that you've been sent to your friend group, that you've been sent to your family to be a conduit, to be a dispenser of God's grace to those that have not seen it. So, how can you be a dispenser of God's grace? It's going to be different for all of us. Maybe it's through your finances, maybe it's through your prayers. Maybe it's through your business. Maybe it's as a neighbor. Maybe it's as a friend. Being a dispenser of God's grace just means that we show how good God is by our words, by our actions, and by how we give. The things that we do demonstrate how, God, how good God is to us as other people see it. That can be in how you treat your employees. That can be in how you spend your time. That can be in your generosity to those around you. It can be in your prayers. Maybe if you're a business owner, maybe you grab the gleaning principle and you try to figure out how can I give someone a chance even if I don't need another employee so that we can provide just one more job so that people can have dignity as they lean in and work and make a living. I don't know what it's going to be for you, but how can you be a dispenser of God's grace? The other direction of grace is receiving grace. And that question that Ruth asks Boaz, I think we all need to ask it of God. Why have you had such favor on me? The way that you expect God to answer that question will show you everything that you need to know about how you understand receiving grace. Do you think it would be because you've been a pretty good person? Do you think he's shown favor on you because you haven't done anything that bad? Do you think he'd show favor on you because you've been a good church member? Do you think he'd show favor on you because you've demonstrated that he really needs you to accomplish his purposes? Or would you respond to God the way that Ruth responded to Boaz? By throwing yourself at his feet head down saying I deserve nothing I have earned nothing there is no logical reason that you should show favor to me I have done nothing to deserve this but I am so grateful God's grace comes in response to only one thing and it's the same thing that Boaz says of Ruth in verse 12 He says, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Receiving grace from God only comes because we have run to God for refuge through faith. Receiving grace from God doesn't have anything to do with the things that we've done. Doesn't have anything to do with the works that we do. It doesn't have anything to do with how we receive it. It all has to do with where we have run for refuge. And as we run to the foot of the cross, as we run to the feet of Jesus and say, I deserve nothing. Then like Ruth, we receive everything. Because the God that did not deserve to die, because he lived a perfect life, he laid his life down for you so that we can run to a safe place for refuge. Why have you shown favor on me? We are going to continue to meditate on that as we move towards communion. And that's the question that I want to be going through our minds, not trying to figure out the answer and try to figure out what I need to do to make myself worthy for God to show favor on me, but to finally, and for good, ground ourselves on the solid foundation that favor only comes as we run to Jesus. So let me pray for us as we get ready to approach communion. God, in the name of Jesus, we're so grateful for your word that you've given us. We're so grateful that you have allowed us to know your grace, to know your goodness. And in this In these moments, would you allow our minds to grab hold of the grace of Jesus, to run to you for refuge, to stop trying to run after all the things that we think will give us purpose or give us safety. And as we approach the table to remember your body that was broken and your blood that was spilled would our eyes come off ourselves and our situations and firmly be placed on Jesus in his name amen thanks for joining us to find out more about the chapel visit thechapelbr.com